0: Daniel 4. Daniel chapter 4. Again, you know the drill. These are kind of long readings, so please just remain seated uh, as we read part of the story. I'm going to just be reading Daniel 4, 4 to 19, and then pick up the rest of the passage as we go along. This is Daniel 4, 4 through 19. This is God's Word. and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the, mu- chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, And the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, who is Daniel, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, as our Savior prayed for us, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Show us Jesus and his grace in these somewhat strange events in ancient history when you humbled the proud as you promised to do. By the power of the Holy Spirit and by your grace, humble us in our pride and lift us up to know you and love you and follow you more and more each day. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Let's play Name That Tune for a second, okay? I think you'll know this song pretty quickly. And now the end is near. I hear some chuckles, some knowing nods. I don't have to keep singing it, right? You know the song? Good. I wasn't sure you're supposed to sing in a Presbyterian sermon anyway. Uh, The song is My Way. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. Not to say the things that he truly feels, and not the words of someone who kneels. Let the record shows. I took all the blows and did it my way. I read a really interesting article about this Paul Anka song famously recorded by Frank Sinatra. Uh, This 2019 article by Sonari Glinton is called A Toast to My Way, America's Anthem of Self-Determination. Glinton writes, it's hard to imagine two occasions more different than the inaugural ball for President Trump and the funeral for murdered rapper Nipsey Hussle. But they have at least one thing in common, the same song played at both. It's a song that has come to represent a particular idea of American individualism, and in some ways feels even more relevant today than when it was recorded in 1968 by Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra actually wasn't very keen on the song. He just thought it was too arrogant and kind of chest-thumping too much for his taste. But it's like the song was written for him and for that moment in American history. Uh, Glinton uh, cites NYU professor Jason King, who observes, you could read my way as a kind of metaphor for the World War II generation that Frank Sinatra represented, looking back at 20th century history in this kind of cosmic defiance. King says that essentially Anka wrote the song, not for Francis Albert Sinatra, the man, but Frank Sinatra, the character, who could stand as a kind of cultural figurehead, saying, look, I did it the way I wanted to do it, and I did it right. I'm looking back at all this history, and I'm okay with it. The song lives on, of course. Uh, It's been covered by many artists across generations, across genres. Uh, It's one of the most played songs at funerals, uh, belted out on karaoke night. Radio producer and columnist Ayana Contreras says, You know that guy who picks up a microphone in a karaoke bar and belts out my way completely irony-free? Whether he's a stockbroker or a construction worker... Contreras says that he's projecting an image of his idealized self. She says, I think it really goes back to the aspirational nature of what Frank Sinatra represented for people. It was like this fabulosity on a level that we can only hope to achieve. I did it the way I wanted to do it. I made it, and here I am, she says, which is at its very root not just aspirational, but a self-determination anthem. I love that word, fabulosity. Fabulosity and self-determination. But in Daniel 4, God lays an ax to the root of all this my way fabulosity, this arrogant self-determination, as he visits Nebuchadnezzar with yet another vision that keeps him awake at night. You see, God won't have your pride. God will have your praise. And you will praise him if you recognize him for who he is and what he has done. I want to walk through this story with you looking at three things we need to understand. Three things that we need uh, that lead us from pride to praise. These three things that you need to understand are, first, what pride is. Second, what pride does. And thirdly, what praise requires. The path from pride to praise is to humbly recognize who God is and what he has done. And looking through the lens of the cross, as we do every week when we approach God's word, uh, we could put the big idea of the sermon like this. Because Because of who God is and what he has done in and through Christ for you, you must abandon pride and praise him alone. Because of who God is and what he has done through Christ for you, you must abandon pride and praise him alone. So first thing you need to understand, let's look at what pride is. Uh, we have started in verse 4, and we're coming back later to the bookends of praise, uh, which we see in chapter 4. So starting in verse 4, Nebuchadnezzar is sleepless in Shinar. Yet again, he is unable to sleep. Everything is looking up for him, but he's, fi- he's filled with inner turmoil. It's funny how that often seems to be the way it works. We see in verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? Those are the words of a man on top of the world, a man who is proud of his military prowess and his mighty rule, but he can't sleep. God is after him about something. The last line of the chapter tells us what God's after him about. If you look at the very last words of chapter four, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So what is this problem of pride? Let's look at what pride is for just a few moments. Uh, First, pride is a problem you can trace through Scripture. I won't read the dream again, these are long readings, uh, but you have this image of a magnificent tree in the center of the earth, and it's, uh, all creation is fed by it, its top reaches to heaven, and that's just the nice part of the dream. We'll get to the terrifying part of the dream in just a minute. But thinking about this dream of the tree, there are really two moments, uh, two prominent uh, moments echoed in this dream, moments in the history of, of the story of the Bible, Two really important moments of Scripture that feature in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Uh, Those two echoes of human pride in the past are echoes of the Garden of Eden and the Tower of Babel. Notice the imagery of Eden, this creation imagery. The tree in the midst of the earth like the tree in the midst of the garden. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches. All flesh was fed from it. As for the echoes of Babel, uh, which took place right here where Babylon is in the plains of Shinar, this place that would become the mighty kingdom of Babel, Uh, look at verse 11. It says, the tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. So you can trace this theme of pride throughout Scripture. It's really behind every sin, of course. But here in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, you have these echoes, these allusions to these two prominent moments in the history of redemption. The Garden of Eden, the Tower of Babel. They might not be readily noticed by Nebuchadnezzar, but surely they wouldn't be lost on the minds of these Judean exiles. And hopefully they're not lost on us as we read this. The Garden of Eden and the Tower of Babel. In the garden, at the heart of the serpent's cunning, uh, when Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden, it's this temptation to pride. It's a temptation to rivalry with God, to become something greater than God, something greater than we were created to be. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Derek Kidner describes this so well. He says, a lie big enough to reinterpret life and dynamic enough to redirect the flow of affection and ambition. To be as God and to achieve it by outwitting him is an intoxicating program. To be as God, that's pride. To be as God, it was the upward pull of pride that pulled Adam down and sent him away in exile out of the presence of God. As for Babel, this tower reaching to heaven, we read in Genesis 11.4, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And God scattered those name builders too. He scattered them, exiled from their project of self-determination. David Helm summarizes this so well. He says, down through the ages from building the Tower of Babel to the image constructed on the plains outside Dura, chapter 2 of Daniel, that golden statue, humankind has attempted to rise to the level of a god. So, pride is a problem you can trace through Scripture. And we can see more clearly in light of this how pride was a problem for Nebuchadnezzar. The problem of pride was addressed first in Uh, the dream Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2 as we saw this vision of a statue representing the kingdoms of the earth over against the kingdom of God and Nebuchadnezzar was indeed the head of gold but his kingdom wouldn't last and it wouldn't stand forever and the lesson he was to learn through this was to recognize that God is the source of all earthly power and to act accordingly and to rule in righteousness and justice He's the one who raises up kings and kingdoms and powers. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God in heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven. You hear those same echoes from Daniel's dream in chapter 4. Making you rule over them all. What was the message of Daniel 2? The rock smashing the statue. It was to turn to the stone. It was to find refuge in the kingdom of God. But what did Nebuchadnezzar do? He builds a 90-foot golden statue and tells everyone to worship it. He's saying, I'm in charge. I'm the greatest. I'm not just going to be the head of gold. I'm all of it. I'm all of it. Uh, Liam Gollier, a a pastor in the PCA, he said, if Nebuchadnezzar had a personalized license plate, it said, King one. That's Nebuchadnezzar. I am all of it. It shows up in verse 30 when Nebuchadnezzar surveys his kingdom and says, Is not this the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? That's when the more severe part of the dream is fulfilled and Nebuchadnezzar is humbled. But before we turn to that, we've seen that pride is a problem you can trace through Scripture. And pride was certainly a problem for Nebuchadnezzar. I want to think for a moment about how the problem of pride shows up in you. How does pride show up in you? Uh, PCA pastor and professor Dale Ralph Davis pulls no punches. I love it. He says, we are all a bunch of Nebuchadnezzar clones wanting to call our own shots, to direct our own show, puny as it is, and seldom, except in a rare moment of sanity, stopping to consider how asinine our passion for self-deification is. Ouch, right? That's all of us. That's our tendency to be just like Nebuchadnezzar. You know, it might be easy to sit back and think, none of this really applies to me. I mean, just think about it. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. We think, (laughs) what are you talking about? Maybe the closest we get to that is on summer vacation or having a few days away from the kids, but you have no palaces to stroll You have no royal residence with which you survey with this regal air and say, is this not great Babylon? I wonder if any of you walk out on your front porch ever and just say that really loudly for all the neighbors to hear. Is this not great Babylon? Probably not. Kids, maybe in your playhouse or your fort, is this not great Babylon? No. But as a matter of fact, we probably have more in common with King Nebuchadnezzar's life of luxury and ease than most of the world. If you've done any traveling, I'm sure you've noticed this. I can't tell you how many times I felt so bad uh, after spending so much time working in Cuba and having a lot of friends there. And then I post on social media some picture of a nice steak that I've smoked or grilled on my grill. And then someone in Cuba sees it and I get messages like, must be nice. And they're close friends giving me a hard time. Uh, But with the many blessings we enjoy in our context, uh, do we stop and consider where they came from? Do we stop and think about this? Do we strut just a little bit with the new car or house or electronics or appliances or whatever it is, the promotion or the recognition at work or at school, and we think, is this not Babylon? I've done all right. I've been doing pretty great. That's pride when it leaves God out of the equation. A sense of accomplishment without a sense of gratitude and humility and recognition for God from whom we have received everything is pride. It's pride. What do you have that you did not receive? In 1 Timothy 6, 17-19, Paul writes, As for the rich in this present age, and I would say for the most part, that includes all of us, charge them not to be haughty, or enough, or luxury, or ease. It's also tempting when you don't know what to do about tomorrow's bills. It's also tempting there. Pride shows up differently in you in a situation like that. If I can refresh a line from Thomas Boston into modern English, Boston put it like this, pride in your heart overlooks and disparages the mercies you've been given and fixates on what you don't have. It makes you like a fly, buzzing right past all the healthy skin and landing on a scab. I know, that's pretty gross. But pride is pretty gross. It can show up in luxury or in need. In luxury, it says, I did this. And in need, it says, I deserve better. Both reactions ignore God. And I'll remind you of where we're going with all this. The path from pride to praise is to humbly recognize who God is and what God has done for you in Jesus. So let's turn to the next thing we need to understand. We've been looking at what pride is, uh, but let's look now at the second thing, and it's this. What pride does. What pride does. Our story takes us further down. It takes us even lower before it brings us back up. That's exactly what pride does. We see this in the interpretation and the fulfillment of the dream. So let me review what happens with just some comments along the way, and we'll see just how low pride takes us. Nebuchadnezzar is terrified and Daniel is horrified. My Lord, says Daniel, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. When Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel not to let the dream or the interpretation bother him, uh, some have said it's because he couldn't care less what God says and he's decided, just tell me, Daniel, because I could care less. I don't believe it's going to happen anyway. Others say it's because he sincerely wanted to know from Daniel what God was trying to tell him. I think that's more right, because Nebuchadnezzar is terrified. He can't sleep. And Daniel is horrified on his behalf. He's saying, it's okay, Daniel, just spit it out. It won't be off with your head, whatever you tell me. I need to know. But what's intriguing to me is how Daniel shows compassion to his cruel tyrant before he gives him the interpretation. I've said there are lessons all over Daniel for living uh, in our Babylon today, living in exile, living as strangers between the times, as we might call it. Surely this applies, this compassion that Daniel shows Nebuchadnezzar. Matthew Henry said about Daniel's compassion, Though Nebuchadnezzar was an idolater, a persecutor, and an oppressor of God's people, yet he was at present Daniel's prince. And therefore, though Daniel foresees and is now going to foretell ill concerning him, he dares not wish ill to him. Nebuchadnezzar is his king. He's going to prophesy and interpret and declare ill that is coming to him. But he dare not wish ill to him. He shows compassion as he prepares to interpret the dream. So let me summarize the interpretation uh, since it repeats the dream that we've already read. Daniel says, remember the tree? It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Remember the watcher? An angel, apparently as Nebuchadnezzar perceives it, who said, chop it down. Chop down the tree and destroy it. Believe the stump and the roots of the earth. This is going to happen to you. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is what's going to happen to you. This might be a rare condition. Uh, referred to as zoanthropy or boanthropy, specifically for Nebuchadnezzar. This thinking that he is an animal or a bovine in this case. Uh, Whatever the case, it's certainly God's way of humbling Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel says, you're going to eat grass like an ox. There's going to be no roof over your head until seven periods of time pass. Probably appropriate here to take seven, representing the full amount of time it takes for Nebuchadnezzar to get it. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, And gives it to whom he will. But then there's hope at the end. He says, Don't forget the stump. King, you're going to be uprooted. You're not going to be uprooted. You're going to be hacked down, but your roots will remain. There's going to be a stump. Something's left over. And when you learn your lesson, your kingdom will be returned to you. We saw how Daniel showed compassion to the king, which reflects pretty well the New Testament command to fear God and honor the emperor. But then Daniel gives counsel to the king. This is another piece of advice that we can take to heart in our context today. Look at the advice that Daniel gives the king. This is instructive for us in our role as Christians living in exile, living in and among the nations, citizens of the kingdom of God in and among the kingdom of man. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Very briefly, uh, compassion and counsel are two very important aspects of our role living uh, as the city of God in the city of man. Our doctrinal standards, the Westminster Confession, uh, they state that the church as church, the church as an institution, represented through her officers and her courts, ought not to intermeddle in civil affairs which concern the commonwealth, unless by way of humble petition, in cases extraordinary, or by way of advice, counsel, for satisfaction of conscience, if they be thereunto required by the civil magistrate. Daniel, living as a representative of God's kingdom while serving in public office in the pagan king's court, he does just that. He gives advice to the king that he should recognize his God-given role as the ruler of Babylon. And rule according to the justice and righteousness that honors God. It seems he is appealing to the law that is written on Nebuchadnezzar's own heart, in the the vein of what Paul says in Romans two, the law by which even pagan kings can rule with justice. At the same time, Joyce Baldwin is probably right in observing a connection to Acts twenty six twenty, that Daniel is calling the king to more than just mere justice, but repentance and faith. Repent and turn to God we read in Acts 26.20, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. Baldwin observes that it's not that by good deeds the king can save himself, but that by changing his way of life, the king will be demonstrating his acceptance of the truth of Daniel's words. So the dream's been interpreted. Daniel has shown himself to be a faithful and compassionate counselor to the king, certainly a model for our civic engagement But what will Nebuchadnezzar do with all this? He stands on the roof of his palace, and he starts crooning, I did it my way. I did it my way. Picking up at verse 28, look there with me. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon? and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. Pride promises to take you up, but it actually takes you down. The great irony of pride is this. Uh, Pride is a self-aggrandizing impulse, but it actually makes you less than you were created to be. The beasts of the field and the birds of the air took shelter under the towering kingdom of Babylon and its king. But pride took the king down, right down from his throne, right down from his prestige, down from the roof of the palace, through the palace gates, and into the fields to graze like an animal, to graze like an ox, growing long hair like birds' feathers, nails as long as eagles' talons. Uh, Dana Fewell, who really comes at the Bible from a far different angle than I would, nevertheless notices something really crucial here how the crashing down of Nebuchadnezzar's dominion is like this reversal of the created order. Uh, She writes, this theme of dominion, the grasping of it and the loss of it, plays ironically on the theme of Genesis 1 and the creation story. There, humanity has given dominion over all the birds, fish, and beasts. Here in Daniel 4, the one who has seized dominion is the one who now must become like a bird beast over which the other humans have dominion. You see, pride makes you less than you were even created to be. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, The story goes that John Gerstner, maybe you know the name, he was a mentor to R.C. Sproul, Presbyterian professor. He was teaching on one occasion about the depravity of man, and he compared uh, men and women to rats. After he had finished his address, there was a question and answer period, and someone who was greatly offended by the comparison stood up and asked him to apologize. The questioner said it was insulting to compare men and women to rats. Dr. Gerstner apologized. I do apologize, he said. I apologize profusely. The comparison was terribly unfair to the rats. <laughs> he then went on to show that what a rat does, he does by the gifts that God has given and make it, to make it rat-like. That's why rats are rats, and that's why they're rat-like. But when we behave like rats... We behave worse than we should and even worse than the rats. See, had, had King Nebuchadnezzar lived as a just king under God's divine authority, he would be living according to the gifts that God gave him. You, O oh king, are the head of gold. God has given it to you. Yet when you live uh, thriving, excelling, succeeding, all with an eye to one who uh, gives you life and breath, you are living according to how God has created you to be. But when in your pride, you sin against God and you exalt yourself and you position yourself against God and you decide that you're going to do whatever you want to do and you're going to see all of your successes as the flowering of your own strength and you're going to see yourself prospering in your palace and at ease because of what you have done. You're actually not getting higher at all. You're clawing your way lower and lower away from what God created you to be. That's no way to live. Self-aggrandizement is never successful. Pride takes you low. So then, what is the way up? How do we claw ourselves back? Can we? What is the path from pride to praise? That's the final point. We've seen what pride is, what pride does. Let's look finally at what praise requires. The book ends to Daniel chapter 4. Show us that what we've been studying, uh, this this whole chapter, it's, it's a proclamation from King Nebuchadnezzar. It's really fascinating that it's included in our scriptures. It's a proclamation in Aramaic, as most of this section of Daniel that we're reading is in. This pagan king is declaring praise to God. What's going on here? We've seen Nebuchadnezzar do that in the past, right? It seems like over and over he says, Daniel's God is the greatest God, super cool God above all the other gods. But what's going on here? Does he get it finally? It certainly seems like he finally declares in full God's point to him all along. We read in verses 1-2, through King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Sounds a bit more personal, doesn't it? It sounds like maybe he gets it. He's declaring that God is the source of all earthly power, that God alone is to be praised. His kingdom is the only eternal kingdom. However, we don't know. It's not spelled out for us. His theology is still way off at some points in this chapter. When he says Daniel is filled with the spirit of the gods and he's named after his God, built Belteshazzar, what's going on with Nebuchadnezzar? Does he really get it? Or is this just another one of those God is greater than the other God statements? Maybe it's just me, a Presbyterian pastor, expecting Nebuchadnezzar to have read Berkhoff by now and to have got his theology straightened out. I don't know. I'm not sure if Nebuchadnezzar was redeemed by faith or not. But I'm not sure we have to settle that in order to understand and receive the message that Nebuchadnezzar was to receive and that the exiles were intended to receive. The message that we're intended to receive. Picking up at verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored Him who lives forever for His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Notice those last words in the chapter. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. These are words from the lips of a pagan king, maybe a redeemed king in this moment, though we never hear more of him in the book of Daniel. This is the final part of his story. These are words from the king of Babylon intended in the first in- instance to the readers of Daniel who are coming out of the exile to repent of their pride. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. It was pride that sent them into exile. This is a call from the lips of the one who had enslaved them, to repent of pride, to look up to heaven, to have their reason returned to them, to turn back to God. It's a call to humility and repentance in life. It's the same call of the gospel that we are called to respond to. Friends, the answer to the great illusion of pride, that you think it takes you up and it takes you lower than you were created to be, the path from pride to praise is to humbly recognize who God is and what God has done for you in Jesus. Gathered here today as God's people, redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, we can see now clearly what God has done in Jesus. You see, the Gospel turns pride on its ear. Jesus didn't say, is this not great Babylon? Jesus didn't sing, I did it my way. Jesus laid aside the glory of heaven. As he laid face flat in the garden of Gethsemane, anguishing over the high price to be paid, just mere hours later he didn't say i did it my way what did he say he prayed father not my way father your way your will be done paul writes in philippians 2 that jesus though being in the form of god did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Through that humble obedience, he was highly exalted, name above all names. You see, pride takes you lower than you were created to be. But the humility of Jesus, who humbled himself far below what he is eternally, the eternal Son of God, humbling himself, Becoming obedient through life to the point of death in your place. That's what brings you up higher than you could have ever hoped for. That's how you go from pride to praise because he died for proud people like us. He died to save us, to redeem us. This is what praise requires. Bowing the knee before Jesus unites you to Jesus. It unites you with the risen and reigning King and all that he is for you. It restores your humanity. That's what allows you to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Humbly receiving Christ in the gospel makes you whole again. That's your reason returning to you. Seeing the one who made you, the one who redeemed you. When you grasp that, that's lifting your eyes to heaven, recognizing that you are nothing without Jesus. And that everything you have done is all because Jesus is working through you. And that everything you have, you have received. And that Jesus is the greatest thing that you could possibly have and ever receive. And it's all about Jesus. In Jesus, you have everything. So because of what God is and has done for you in Jesus, you must abandon pride and praise him alone. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, not our way, but your way be done. Give us humility before we're driven to humility. Not by an angry God, but by a loving Father who won't let us wander off forever after those things that we think will lift us up, but only take us down. Give us the compassion and the counsel of Daniel as we navigate life in a world that doesn't know you or follow your way. May we be used to speak your truth to a world that desperately needs to know who you are and what you have done in Jesus. Turn us away from pride and back to praise in everything we do. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.